Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. reading the Bible for us. The passage is Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with you, Adia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. All right, I want you to take a moment, turn to the person next to you and ask them, what comes to mind for you when you hear the word peace? At one level, it's not a complicated idea, but at another level, I suspect with as many people as we have in this room, we'd have almost as many different responses trying to explain what peace means to us. I asked myself that question this week, what what comes to mind for me when I hear the word peace? And maybe inspired by the news, the first word I thought of was ceasefire. And then I thought, oh, it's more than that, maybe calm. And then I thought of harmony. But when we read the Bible and it talks about peace, it feels like it has this much bigger concept in mind. So I got my trusty theological dictionary, which is just as heavy as it looks. And it had a giant list of things that the Bible has in mind when it talks about peace. It said peace can mean cessation of war. It's like a ceasefire. But it also means things like completeness, soundness, and wholeness. Friendship with companions. Friendship with God. Contentment. Anything working towards safety, welfare and happiness. Well-being and security. Freedom from strife, both internal and external. And that can mean calm of heart. It kept going, but even just there, if peace is all that, it's no wonder, is it, that peace is so universally desired. In a world of conflict and confusion, of anger and anxiety, of suffering and struggle. Our hearts 
long for peace. And in Philippians 4, we learn that that's exactly what God wants to give us. God wants to give us peace. But peace is not always a gift so easily received. Or maybe it's just a gift that has to be received again and again. So in these verses, Paul outlines for us how more and more we can each have peace. Let's pray and we'll jump in. God, we thank you so much that you want to give us peace and that we have this chapter to teach us how we can have more of it. And so we pray we'd learn from it tonight and we come away from here changed people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so how can we have peace? I don't know about you, but when you read chapter 4 of Philippians, my eyes just go straight to 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Really beautiful, but it kind of reads like a step-by-step guide, doesn't it? Like maybe a recipe, a recipe for peace. So step one, identify a situation in which you might feel anxious. Step two, make a request to God through prayer. Step three, add thanksgiving as part of your prayer. Step four, bake for 35 minutes at 180, and then boom, out of the oven comes a peace that you would not even understand if you tried. If I'm worried, I should pray about it, give thanks, and then I'm going to have this amazing peace. Except, have you ever tried and you found that it didn't quite work? I mean, don't get me wrong, sometimes I have prayed and pretty quickly afterwards I have been overwhelmed by this incredible peace. And I've heard so many stories from people. People kept coming up to me this morning and tell me such traumatic moments in their life where then God gave them this extraordinary peace. I absolutely believe that God can give us this incredible, overwhelming peace when we pray for it. But then it just makes me wonder more why in some other circumstances I don't get that peace. Did I mess up the recipe somehow? Where did we go wrong? I think we go wrong for a start when we start comparing God to an oven. We go wrong when we approach God like a vending machine. Paul isn't offering a vending machine approach to peace. Paul isn't interested in vending machine spirituality. Paul isn't describing a recipe at all. He's describing a relationship. Relationship, not recipe. And if we don't understand that, if we don't understand verses 6 and 7 in the context of the rest of the chapter where Paul tries to elaborate on this relationship for us, then we're going to have a problem. When we pray through our worries and we don't feel peace afterwards, we're going to conclude that either there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with God. So let's jump back to the beginning of the chapter and instead of seeing a recipe that offers peace, let's see the relationship that offers peace. Verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Here's Paul, this Christian leader writing 2,000 years ago. He's been traveling around the Mediterranean Sea, starting different Christian communities, starting different churches. And now he's writing this letter to what I suspect might be his favorite church, the Philippians in northern Greece. 
and to this church that he loves so dearly, this is his deepest desire. He wants them to stand firm in the Lord. He wants them to stand firm in the Lord. No matter what comes, no matter what conflicts, no matter what confusion, no matter what chaos, he wants them to stand firm in the Lord Jesus. But, and I think this is subtle, but I don't think he's just telling them to stand firmly. He's not just saying, make sure you stand firm. He's saying, stand in the Lord and then you will be firm. You'll be, when you're standing in Jesus, you'll be safe. You'll be secure. That's where you'll find peace. That's where you'll be firm. Because peace is found by standing in Jesus. But what on earth does that mean, right? And we, we can't literally stand on Jesus, let alone, let alone in Jesus. We get that as a metaphor, but what does the metaphor mean? What does it mean to be in Jesus? It's a massive theological question, and I'm really proud of all of you for asking it. Being in Jesus, or being in the Lord, as Paul says here, is Paul's theological shorthand, like his theological abbreviation, for having a relationship with Jesus. If we're in Jesus, that means we've put our trust in him, we've given him our allegiance, and now we belong to him. We're in him, we're in his kingdom, we're in his family. But it's even deeper than that, it's even more profound. Spiritually, the Bible says that we've been kind of like merged with Jesus. We've been united with him, so that now whenever we sin, our sin transfers onto him. And his righteousness, his goodness transfers back onto us. Once we're in Jesus, the broken relationship we used to have with God is now replaced by his perfect peaceful relationship that he has with God. We have peace with God because of him, because we're in him. That's really complicated stuff. Maybe sufficient just to say for tonight in Philippians 4, that when we're in Jesus, we have a relationship with him and we're under his protection. Being in Jesus is kind of like standing on the couch when the floor is lava. You know that game? You know where it's safe, right? This was just for the youth and none of you reacted. That's fine. All right. I tried to be relevant. I won't ever do that again. All right. Being in Jesus is like being in a house during a storm. If you're on West Penn on Thursday afternoon, it got wild. The storm rolled through. It is, the wind is howling, the rain is pouring, the thunder is roaring, but you're in the house. The windows might even be rattling, but you're in the house. But I feel like that analogy still fails because we don't actually have a relationship with the house. No, I think maybe it's, it's closer to say being in Jesus is like a child safe in their parents' arms. I feel like every kid at some point in their life makes that mistake, that terrible, terrible mistake, where they think they're standing next to, next to their parent, but they're actually standing next to a stranger. <laughs> and you might see them even start to hug the stranger's leg. And they notice the pants are a little bit different. And then they have the horror. And I've watched my kids do this multiple times. And there's, there's never an easy way to get them to stop. Because then they'll realize what's happening because they'll see you over here. But when they realize the, the terrible mistake they've made, every time I've seen my kids do it, they run straight to me and make me pick them up. Now, why? Why, why, why? Would they be so uncomfortable being next to this man and find so much safety in the arms of this man. 
Because I'm not just some man, right? I'm their dad. I'm their dad. We have a relationship, this relationship that is completely based on trust and security. Right now, and maybe only for a few more years, but right now, my arms are the safest place they know. And that's what Paul wants for the Philippians. He wants them to know Jesus, to remember what he's done for them, to know how safe he is, and to find their assurance and their security in relationship with him. Stand firm in the Lord Jesus and you'll be firm. Peace is found in relationship with Jesus. From here, Paul jumps to a specific circumstance in the life of the Philippian church to show how peace through Jesus can actually help in other relationships. In verses 2 and 3, Paul names two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who have been fighting with each other. And just single them out like this. In this letter that's going to be read publicly before the church, this dispute must already be very public. And given how it's going to take weeks for this letter to arrive, it sounds like this dispute has been rolling on for quite a while now. So if it's really public, and the fact that everybody knows about it hasn't caused them to reconcile, and if it's been going on for this long and time still hasn't managed to heal all wounds, what hope is there for this relationship? What's going to restore peace? Paul pleads with them in verse 2 to be of the same mind in the Lord. That means he wants them to be in the same mind, to find unity in Jesus. He doesn't tell them to shake hands. He doesn't even tell them to forgive each other at this point. Instead, he he points them to Jesus. He invites them to remember Jesus, whom they have contended for. Jesus, who has given them everything. Jesus, who has written their names down in the book of life. He wants them to consider Jesus and let their differences be overwhelmed by this relationship they each share with him. If you are at odds with another Christian, the way to peace might start with these two really simple sounding questions. Number one, does Jesus love each of you? Number two, do each of you love Jesus? Now, I know that sounds really simple, but the results can be so profound. There is an extraordinary work that has been happening the last few decades in the Middle East between Israelis and Palestinians who have been able to overcome generations of hurt and hatred because they've recognized their mutual love for Jesus and his mutual love for them. Peace is found through relationship with Jesus. Now, Paul transitions again, having established how Jesus offers peace between people, Paul turns to what we might today call inner peace or peace inside. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. That command can sound like an absolute burden, can't it? I mean, just, just be happy all the time. No problem, right? Except that's not what Paul says to do. He doesn't say rejoice always. He says rejoice in the Lord always. And that's a crucially different thing. In a broken world, we we should sometimes feel sad and disappointed and angry and confused and hurt. It's right for us to mourn and grieve sometimes. 
but as people who are experiencing healing and wholeness in Jesus, Christians are able to feel more than one emotion at a time, even sometimes contradictory emotions. Alongside our negative emotions, we still have a reason to rejoice. We can rejoice no matter the circumstances because no matter the circumstances, we still have Jesus. The Lord is near. That's what Paul says in verse 5. We have an ongoing, life-giving, reassuring relationship with him. Now, our joy might not always be ecstatic or exuberant. But that's okay. Paul doesn't tell us to let our exuberance be evident to all. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The word gentleness is a bit of a different word to what he sometimes, when he sometimes says gentleness. He's not talking about don't be rough. Not that, that kind of opposite of roughness. Gentleness, he close to calmness or peaceableness. Somebody that doesn't get into a lot of arguments and disputes. That kind of gentleness. A psychologist today might talk about being a non-anxious presence, that the calm influence in the room. I'm confident if this had been translated in 2023 and not 2011, they would have listened to young adults and translated this as chillness. When we stand firm in Jesus, when we keep relating to him, that's the kind of joyful peace we can have. It's the kind of gentle, chill peace that we can offer other people. Because peace is found through relationship with Jesus. And now finally, with all that backdrop, we get to verses 6 and 7. And I think we can read them right. Let's start with that first phrase. Do not be anxious about anything. It's really hard to hear tone of voice in written communication, isn't it? You ever like tried to send that text message and like, oh, smiley face emoji again and again, just to try and convey to them, I'm not trying to be judgmental, whatever it is. It's really hard to convey tone in written communication. And when we get written communication without emojis, we don't know exactly how to respond to it, we often will read a tone into it based on how we either see ourselves or how we see the other person. And some people have an image of God in their minds that he is just always disappointed with them. That they never measure up, that he always wants more. And so when they read, do not be anxious, they hear it as a rebuke. Don't be anxious. Stop worrying. Where's your faith? Get it together. I feel like this verse can feel especially condemning for someone with an anxiety disorder. But I hope as we look at this phrase within the flow of the passage, we can hear a better tone. This isn't a reprimand or a rebuke. We're not supposed to feel guilt for worrying. We're supposed to feel comforted in our worry. This is God, our loving Father, saying, shh, it's okay. Jesus is near. You don't need to be anxious. But when we do feel anxious, when something arises that we're worried about, Paul encourages us to make the most of our relationship with him. and Sorry, with our relationship with Jesus and pray. After all, what's a relationship without communication? We have such a loving relationship with Jesus. Jesus loves us so much that he cares about every little bit of our lives. No matter how 
irrational we think our worry might be, no matter how disproportionately we might be responding. Jesus cares about it more than we do. So we can always come to him in prayer. We can always tell God what's on our hearts. We can pour out our emotions to him and ask him to work. Paul says we should absolutely do that and we should do it with thanksgiving. Not just because thanksgiving guards us against whining and complaining, but because gratitude reminds us of what God's already done for us before. Which helps us remember that we can trust him. It reminds us again that we are safe with him. And the peace of God, a peace which surpasses understanding, a peace which is better experienced than explained, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That's not a guarantee that you'll always feel God's peace because feelings aren't constant in a relationship. But as we relate to Jesus, the better we know our powerful king, the more reason we have for peace, no matter the situation. There is peace in his presence. Peace is found as we keep relating to Jesus. And then Paul has one more suggestion for people looking for peace. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And the God of peace will be with you. I love that last line. In verse 7, he said, we could have the peace of God. But now in verse 9, he says, we can have the God of peace. And I don't think these are different promises. I think these are the same promise because God's blessings are always experienced in relationship. Now, there's so much wisdom in those last two verses. When I'm filtering the media I'm, I'm consuming when I'm devoting more of my mind and my thoughts and my time to things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, I genuinely do experience more peace. But rather than making this too broad tonight, let me just suggest one thing we could consider, one thing to think about that meets all this criteria, one person to think about. Think about Jesus. Because he is absolutely true, absolutely sincere, absolutely faithful. Think about Jesus who is so noble that he prayed for his enemies while they were killing him. Think about Jesus who is so right and pure that he can take all our sins on himself and overcome them. Think about Jesus, so lovely and admirable as he ate with outcasts and, and touched the leper and told the bleeding woman that he could, she could be in his family and forgave failures and invited you and me to come close. Think about Jesus, who is absolutely excellent and absolutely praiseworthy. He's absolutely worth it. Jesus, who will one day be praised by people from every tribe, tongue and nation for all eternity. Think about Jesus. Rejoice in him. 
relate to him. Because peace is found in his presence. Peace is found as we relate to Jesus. Lord God, we thank you so much for that. You could have left us here on our own. Or you could have had just Jesus die for us, save us, and then still leave us to work out the rest for ourselves, but you stay in relationship with us. You care about all the tiny things and the big things even more than we do. I pray that you would be teaching us to make the most of that and pour our hearts out to you when we hurt. To tell you all our anxious thoughts. To do it with gratitude, reminding ourselves of what you've already done for us so that we can have the peace that you want to give us. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmatt's.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.